Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As of this taping, COVID has killed more than 616,000 Americans and about 4.3 million worldwide as political discord over vaccination, mask, and vaccine passport mandates soar worldwide. This as public health experts worry about even more virulent strains of the virus in the coming months. Another big week for earnings. Boeing spins off its innovation business. Talus sells off one of its heritage businesses to Japanese conglomerate Hitachi. And the Eurofighter uh, combat aircraft is going to be getting a major upgrade. Joining us to discuss all these stories and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch in our New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy, fresh off of his big family vacation in Scandinavia, which the entire world has been poised to hear about, uh, and, and now apparently decamped to the Outer Banks uh, of North Carolina. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago, as always. Thanks. Yeah, it's highlights of the week, Vago. Thank you. I always plan my travels around availability for this <laughs> weekly event. Thank you, Vago. <laughs> Thanks very, very much. And I should point out, right, that uh, that actually Ron is not in our New Jersey bureau. He is in the Turks and Caicos. So I, I should... I should point that out. Gentlemen, uh, thanks very much again, uh, especially for working your schedules around what, what it is uh, that we're trying to do here. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And I should point out that Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Air Space Conference and trade show last week, uh, at which we interviewed HII's president and CEO, uh, Mike Petters, uh, that uh, before uh, the company uh, reported, obviously, its second quarter and first half uh, earnings. Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, another interesting week uh, on the uh, street. Where are folks uh, at, at this point and, and what uh, struck you, right? I mean, not many earnings. Lockheed had an investor day. Uh, Lockheed's uh, CFO, Chief Financial Officer Ken Posenreid, um, abruptly resigned just before uh, the company's virtual uh, investor day. We had Mercury Systems report and obviously Huntington Ingalls reported as well. But give us sort of a survey on where, the, where, the head, where, where folks are on the street about where the market is and where it's going. Yeah, I'd say, you know, broadly in the A&D sector, we saw uh, the themes that we have been seeing here for the last couple of weeks sort of just continue, kind of cruise along the same path. Um, you know, it's just a, you know, a, a sense of, um, you know, on commercial uh, folks trying to play the recovery and so on and so forth. Business aviation is, is still seen as a favorite area right now. Um, Defense, it's been it's been mixed, right? Uh, we've had some companies report fantastic quarters, and other companies have more challenging quarters. Um, and we just saw a little bit more of that this week. You know, the broader markets um, were uh, generally pretty pretty you know uh, buoyant this week. So, and, and remember, now we're kind of moving into uh, vacation season, so there's not as many people in the office. When you send out you know an email to you know, your your client base, there's a lot of out of office uh, replies. So it's we're moving into maybe a little bit of a less, a little more quiet, less dynamic period in the market. Um, and how did the Lockheed Investor Day go? And how was uh, Ken's abrupt departure, uh, citing family reasons? Um, I think John Mahler is going to be uh, taking over uh, for for him. Yeah, how did how did all of that go? Um, yeah, there are a lot of questions, right? I mean, uh, Ken was well liked by the investment community, and you know, investors never look at it favorably when you see a, an executive officer take off um, kind of without warning. Uh, and you know, the company didn't say much, uh, not that they need to, uh, but generally, investors like to know, you know what, what's going on. And, and, and on the heels of when you look at Lockheed's reporting this last quarter, they took a big charge on a classified program. Folks weren't so happy about that. So they held an investor day this week. And, you know, we published a note after it. And the note was titled, Where's the Beef? Because uh, they didn't really say a heck of a lot. 
Um, you know, there was a lot of product videos, just sort of a nice maybe marketing opportunity in, right. uh, for some of the, the things that they do, but they didn't say much about the, the financials. They talked a lot about social distancing at Lockheed. Um, uh, Jim Taklet, the, the, the new CEO as of a couple quarters, he wasn't even in the same location with the new CFO and the IR people. So it seemed a little disjointed that way. So it was all in, I think it was a broadly pretty disappointing um, investor meeting. And, and, you know, we felt that and we got a lot of investor feedback on that too, that um, it just wasn't, you know, where, where's the beat? And anything to say about Mercury as well as HII and uh, insofar as earnings goes? Yeah. Huntington Eagles reported a, a, a strong quarter. Um, and we saw the, that reflected uh, in the stock. Um, ship accounting always sort of mystifies investors, right? Because uh, they're, they're long lead item um, products. It takes years in some cases to build them. There's, you know, quarters can have, um, you, know, you know, positive positive estimates of completion when a ship is delivered and so on and so forth. And it can be, you know, the earnings can be a little volatile, but this quarter was actually, you know, um, a, a very good one. Um, Mercury Systems kind of surprised the other way. Um, and they had a quarter where their organic growth was very, like, I think it was zero. Uh, and, and investors didn't look very favorably on that, particularly from a, a smaller cap company that sort of, you know, marquee has been, you know, better than peer organic growth and so on and so forth. So uh, the Mercury shares got hit pretty hard on that. Um, Sash, uh, it's certainly uh, an interesting uh, time, right? Uh, a lot of protests, for example, in France over uh, 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 vaccine passports, which uh, ideally are seen as a way uh, for everybody to get to normal, uh, fully back to normal. UK moving very closely to that aim, uh, both Wales and, and Scotland opening up as well, uh, as England did a couple of weeks ago. Where are we and where are we going and how is this being reflected, especially in um, Airbus's latest numbers from your perspective? Yeah, um, I mean, look, look, start with France. Um, they'd like to protest in France, let's be honest. Uh, and protesting against government is a, a, is a national sport and they're very, very good at it. Um, but it, it's very interesting that France and to, to a slightly lesser extent Italy have imposed very, very strict rules uh, about you know, what you can and can't do without a vaccine passport. And basically, I mean, you know, in Italy, you can't go into a restaurant without a vaccine passport as of uh, Friday evening. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that's going to be enforced. Um, uh, and, and France, you know, even more so, you're going to have to show that you've been vaccinated to pretty much go out and about. And this has been um, taken, you know, badly by um uh you know a, a a fairly high high proportion of uh french people not because france has got a, a terribly bad um uh record on vaccination i mean you know it, things started badly because generally because of sort of poor organization as you could say you know happened across a lot of europe but um i think that there is just a a a remarkable resentment of being told what to do by the uh, by any French government. I mean, it really isn't political. It's just bloody minded, frankly. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, it, how much this is going to be adhered to, and how much people will actually just rather quietly get a vaccine passport because it makes life easier in terms of uh, what you can't do, and indeed how uh, rigorously. Uh, these these new rules are enforced in France. I think you know it's something we're going to. It's going to take a, I think several months for for this element all to settle down. But I mean you know to to, to, to you know to to step back a bit and look at the broader issue. Uh, you know, the broader issue is that uh, you know the the pandemic is is literally working at, at different rates and in different ways, all, right across Europe. But I think almost the most interesting thing in the last couple of weeks or so has been the degree to which China has had a couple of more uh, outbreaks of the Delta variant. And um, lo and behold, Chinese airlines are suddenly pulling capacity. Um, uh, and so, you know, China was actually responsible for pretty much the, you know, the global aviation industry turning down uh, a, a couple of points last week, because China is such a large component of, at present of demand. And I think, you know, what this comes back to is, the, the big domestic markets have, have recovered very, very well, those being China and the US predominantly. Um, US looks like it's at capacity now, or pretty much at capacity, hence uh, you know, why there were quite a lot of cancelled flights last week. China probably put too much capacity on and 
uh, has you know started to, to uh, sort of pull back a bit. And international traffic is all over the place. Uh, uh, but generally, it's it's sporadic, depending on the you know the the pet the, the the market pairs that we're talking about and uh, the the individual um, vaccination rates. As for Airbus last month, I mean Airbus was you know they had a, a you know July is normally one of the two quiet months of the year. Um, uh, they tried to get a lot of aircraft out at the end of the quarter, so June um, things look a bit quieter in the first month of the quarter. Uh, July, and then of course you have got the sort of the, the rundown to the uh, summer holidays. So July and August tend to tend to be a bit weak. But it, it was very very interesting. I thought that all of the deliveries for Airbus last month were were A three twenties effectively. You know, wide bodies just are not coming out of the factories at the moment, um, and it does suggest that you know there, there may be some production problems. There are rumored production problems for the A three thirty in particular, but also just customers aren't that interested in taking wide body capacity at this stage of the year because. You take a wide body now, you might not be using it for a big chunk of uh, the rest of the year and, and, and into 2022. Um, Richard, let me uh, bring you into the discussion. You, Ron, and I, uh, and our uh, mutual friend, Dr. Kevin uh, Michaels uh, of the uh, Aerodynamic uh, Aerodynamics Consultancy uh, joined the Pacific Northwest Aerospace uh, Association for uh, their mid-year uh, update, and it was a it was a great discussion. And and you recently uh, flew uh, transatlantic, uh, obviously. What what are your takeaways uh, about? you know, sort of where we are and where we're going. Because we have seen, right, I mean, it was a bad week for Spirit uh, last week, uh, different airlines with different mandates, United saying that it's going to require vaccinations from its team. Um, you know, there is an expectation that there's likely going to be legal action in the wake of these about what employers can do and can't do and what they can make you do and can't do. Um, you know, your, your sense on, on where we are and where we're going. Well, it's, uh, it looks a lot worse than it is. I mean, I think it's the number one takeaway. You know, lots of choppiness in the markets and lots of uncertainty. And as we found out this summer, lots of uncertainty with border closures. Some are open, some are maybe not so open. You know, it's, there's just so much going on, but we shouldn't be distracted from the number one message here, which is that we're living in an age of, frankly, miracles compared to where we were last year. Um, vaccination rates are again, starting to pick up as people realize the threat and hopefully will continue to do so. Uh, yes, Delta is a concern and whatever comes after Delta. Um, but, you know, none of them are particularly that radically different. They may be more transmissible, but not more fatal. And all, most importantly, so far are dealable, if that's the word, with vaccines. Um, it, this is just a question of time, you know, relative to where we were, say, in February or March, Things are fantastic and will continue to get so. It's just that we're disappointed about the summer. Now, some of the airline difficulties, of course, are a question of pricing. This is a totally different issue. You know, Spirit being a really good example of that. People are finding out that it's really tough to be an ultra low cost carrier in a time of rising costs for your own cost base, you know, whether it's labor, oil, which of course is getting back to previous high points. Um, or whatever else, you know, it, this is a real concern, getting the profitability balance right at a time when pricing is still fragile at best. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of messages being sent. Maybe people are pulling back here and there, but the long-term trend is still, I think, positive. It's just that we're, you know, going through a few periods of, uh, a period of uh, rather difficult headlines. And uh, I, sh I should just uh, take the suspense out for the audience. You're still on your bullish uh, track of uh, a, a uh, earlier uh, return uh, to, to normalcy, right? M mid next year is when you expect us to well, get there. It's been 4Q. Uh, I haven't changed. 4Q, 22. 4Q, excuse and me. 4Q. And I just don't see 4Q, anything. 22. That, that rules 4Q, right off 22. the top. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, you know, <laughs> that's why, that's why we use that date because it rhymes. Uh, you know, the most important thing to remember is that relative to February, oh my God, things are great. As Sash says, you know, domestic markets in particular look fantastic. The fundal, fundamental economic picture looks really fantastic. I mean, like just infinitely better than where we fear, feared we would be six months or certainly a year ago. And the idea that next summer, any of this is going to be an issue and stop us from getting back, unless there really is a radical mutation or a sudden, you know, 
El Barakad sort of uh, wave of anti-vax sentiment like you're seeing now in France. And I just don't see what would stop us from getting back to peak in 4Q22. Um, Ron, or, you know, you, you joined us for the conference as well, and you haven't had a bite at this apple yet. So you're, you're saying, because one of the things we talked about is like, okay, like what is normal? right? What is normal? Because everybody is going to have a different normal. There are companies that are saying, hey, we're going to let people telework indefinitely. Um, you know, that was one thing. People were very happy to be back uh, seeing people uh, at uh, Navy League, which was terrific. On the other hand, folks were saying, you know, I, I, I was a lot more effective in, in some ways, right? So we'll use travel uh, may, maybe differently than we have. What, what, what's your sense on where we are and where we're going on commercial? And then um, I want to jump to uh, Horizon X, uh, which was kind of an interesting divestiture by the company. And uh, Sash, want to talk to you about also Talos's move uh, on, on selling the, the transportation uh, division to Hitachi. But go ahead, Ron. Yeah, so just a just quick comment. So we're a little bit you know, less bullish than, than Richard. You know, we've, our forecast has been getting back to 2019 uh, global air traffic levels in the middle of 2023, um, the long tentpole seems to be international travel, right? International is the piece that's two thirds of global travel. So international by definition that across borders, um, just a snapshot out of my own life um, for Bank of America, because I have a back to office date, I can travel um, pretty much anywhere I want, or I want or need to go for work domestically. However, I can't travel across borders, including the Canadian border. So um, that's just kind of one example, and I would imagine in other workplaces is, is pretty similar. Um, that being said, and I, you know, as, as how can I say it, as we go through this process, I'm hearing more conversations that surprise me to the extent that, you know, some of the major law firms in the world today are now considering, you know, days in office as a way to attract um, hirees. So if you're going to go work for a major law firm in New York City, now there's a lot of talk about maybe maybe we should only do three days in the office, that this whole FaceTime concept, FaceTime, not the software, but FaceTime, face in the office right. um, concept could be, could be changing and evolving, which honestly surprises me a little bit. And I've heard more talk among you know, the, the professional community that travels a lot, say, as an example, you know, the professional management consultant. I've heard even some of them saying, hey, you know what? I got to get back on the road, but I don't want to get on the road as much as I did before. Now, we'll see how that all plays out. And sometimes right. the travel gets forced on you. But, you know, there's still some open questions floating out there. So I hope we're right with, um, you know, mid-2023. But there, there are some meaningful potential secular, I don't want to call it changes, but secular shifts that could have an impact. So it's something we're watching closely. I, I think there's a sense that people have that there is going to be some travel, which is critical, right? You want to make new contacts. Certainly, if you're a new employee, right, being in the office and learning uh, from your uh, more experienced counterparts is critical, uh, especially if you want to set yourself up properly for a career, right? I mean, that's where you learn a lot of your core skills uh, that I think makes you successful later in life. Uh, so I could see that as being uh, something that's an attractive feature. On the other hand, there are folks, you know, whether whether it's the Navy or any other organization saying, hey, look, you know, so we were doing a lot of internal com company traffic, uh, travel. It, it, are those trips absolutely necessary when everybody knows each other? You have a good rapport, uh, right? I mean, was it necessary to drag you all the way to California for that for that meeting? Um, and I think that folks are asking uh, those those kinds of questions, obviously. Um, Sash, do you have anything you want to add uh, to that uh, as, as somebody who... Uh, was was definitely a, a, a grueling traveler, but uh, the bulk of the travel that you've been doing now is between, you know, the, the western part of the country and London. Yeah, I mean, look, I would I, I would love to be able to get back on the on on the road properly. I'd love to be able to come to the come to the United States for as you know as long as we're not able to come into the United States without, uh, you know, that this bit of transatlantic travel and and you know this is absolutely. Um, decimated uh, the uh, the UK long haul airlines, and you know, just as um, uh, an anecdote, the, the headlines say Virgin Atlantic is looking to float this year, 
let's be clear about it. The reason why they're looking to float this year is because they need to refinance because they're going to run out of money um, because they, you know, the long haul transatlantic business that holds them and IAG up, or at least the British Airways part of IAG, just is not occurring uh, at, uh, at the moment and doesn't look like it's going to going to pick up until probably early. Uh, well, I, I hope I hope it'll be sooner than early next year. But um, you know, we've been we've been disappointed so far. I'll just raise one question. I think it's something we've got to keep really got to you know keep our eyes open for. Um, the one thing that could hurt air travel as you know we return back towards 2019 levels whatever i think it's going to be pricing and and hence costs uh and you know the more that taxes get imposed on uh airlines or uh costs associated with um uh you know vaccination or or you know passenger checking and so forth all of which they'll pass on in some form in ticket prices that's the sort of thing which at the margin certainly hurts leisure travel um, because leisure travel is very, very price sensitive. Uh, but you know, if, they, if they're not careful, and also if they can't get their frequencies back quick enough, it's going to affect business traffic as well, because then you don't have the, um, the ease of business travel that we, we were used to um, up to the end of 2019. Uh, Richard, do you want to add anything to that before we uh, go on to the defense part of the discussion? The obvious point that it's very easy to talk about cutbacks you know, moving forward when people just still haven't fully returned to travel. But <laughs> as soon as all your competitors and peers start to travel, so will you. That's my message, you know, and um, businesses are all going to feel that way. Um, I, I, I also think that when folks are like saying, I can't wait to get, you know, they're a little stir crazy because let's face it, a lot of folks are cooped up at home. Some people like being cooped up at home and for other people, they are a lot less happy about being cooped up at home. But you're right, there is a very prof uh, important uh, professional dynamic, right, uh, on on where to be. Uh, and and But I do think that those calls are gonna be a lot, a lot more interesting going forward, right? Um, you know, why you travel, do you need to travel, I think may become a question that, that folks are might ask themselves a little bit more of than, than less of going into the future. Uh, Ron. You know, if I just maybe add one thing ahead. to that. Uh, you know, which is that everyone loves telling a story and corporate executives have now been given a story to tell. A big part of their cost base is going to be travel in many cases. And they'll say, well, for these reasons, we're going to save money because dot, 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 dot. Now, they might wind up getting slapped by reality as, again, their competitors travel and they lose market share. But it's a story they can tell right now. And it sounds like a good one. So maybe it's true. And just a brief word from our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Um, let me uh, go to uh, Horizon X. Uh, surprising move. Uh, talked uh, to several folks who thought, wow, that was surprising because Horizon X, when uh, that was the sort of the, the Silicon Valley interface innovation unit uh, that uh, Boeing uh, set up a couple of years ago. There was, you know, in the wake of DIUX, almost everybody, Airbus, I know, set uh, something up. A lot of the leading companies sort of rushed out to Silicon Valley and those who already were there uh, accentuated what they were doing in order to be able to keep their fingers on the pulse of uh, innovation. Ron, what did you make of this spinoff? Uh, because for some people, it appears to have sent the wrong message or maybe the right message, depending on, you know, like what's the message you took from it? And, and well, you when you that? when you worry about innovation and engineering prowess um, at a company and they get rid of their, um, you know, call it venture investment arm or they're investing in new technologies that are, you know, germane to their core businesses potentially it doesn't make you feel better about innovation at the company. Uh, it doesn't make you feel better about their engineering prowess. So, you know, at, at a time where you know, there's questioning over um, Boeing's engineering skills across platforms, you know, across businesses, uh, and then they divest of um, Horizon X, of, of course, that, I mean, that just kind of adds more fuel to that fire. On top of that, uh, and this is something we've discussed in the past, when you're trying to attract, you know, some of the best young talent out of out of school, and you're doing it in an environment today where there are startups in aerospace, there are companies that are not just startups, but you know, very you know successful companies doing some very exciting things. 
uh, in commercial space, both you know, in space, in launch, uh, space infrastructure, uh, in the more traditional uh, uh, aeronautics markets with EV, tall electric flight, and you know, all the electrification and and hybridization, uh, hydrogen flight. How are you going to? You know, how does this play into your you know attracting engineering talent as well? Um, you know, and, and some folks will always be attracted to large commercial airplanes, kind of no matter you know what what they are. But um, you're going to lose a whole cohort of people to some of the this this other stuff that's perceived as potentially more exciting. So I, I don't think there's any way to spin it positively. I mean, honestly. So that's where I fall on. Um, speaking of divestiture, uh, uh, Sash and Richard, do you guys want to take a quick bite, bite of that apple before we move to to Talis, Eurofighter, and, and other topics? Sash, Richard? No, nothing. No, I mean, no, nothing to add to Ron, frankly. I, I would just like to strongly endorse what Ron just said and point out just before the pandemic began, uh, a few of us Washington types were trotted out to St. Louis by Boeing to visit Horizon. And I sort of had my doubts about the place, but boy, I, it was just, they were all young engineers who were really super enthusiastic. It was such a strong message about their future, about the technology they hope to bring to bear in the future, how they're really a tech company at heart, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, as Ron said it best, there's no positive way to spin this, none. Speaking of divestiture, Sash, uh, I want to uh, bring up uh, Thompson CSF and Alstom, uh, historic names in uh, transportation, uh, certainly in high-speed rail. Uh, Talus was a key part of that. Uh, obviously, it's one of the heritage businesses uh, that uh, came to the company uh, when it rebranded itself. Uh, it's been, you know, Talus proper has been increasingly looking at cyber and big data and artificial uh, intelligence and concluded a 1.6, uh, almost 1.7 uh, billion euro deal uh, selling this uh, division to Hitachi. What did we learn from the company's uh, earnings? And how did the market take this? Because what it was, it was seven point six euro per share, right? Pretty good money. Yeah, 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 it. yeah. About some, some, yeah, some, some point eight. Um, I agree. It, it's it's always rather disquieting when companies sell off a heritage business, particularly a heritage business that they've spent a huge amount of management time turning around in the last five years. The business fell into loss in the, the mid-teens because basically they took some really, really poor contracts. But, you know, all credit talents, they've turned it around very, very impressively. It's been, you know, back to growing at around a reasonable rate, although it's never been a, a super high grower. Um, margins are back up uh, as well. And, uh at previous investor days, Alice has made a very, very good fist of explaining why it is that the business fits inside the broader Talis, which we tend to think of as being a defense electronics and commercial avionics business, and uh, you know what it gets out of uh, that business in terms of you know shared access to highly secure networks and cyber and so forth. So, I, I got to say, you know, my initial reaction was very, very skeptical i you know i, I couldn't or I, I was worried that i was not going to understand the uh the reason for this divestiture and actually management did a really good good job of explaining why now part of it is that i think that they think that the trans you know the transportation business which, which is predominantly railway signaling but also uh ticketing heavily focused on uh urban rail so metros and and high speed rail um you know Part of it, I think, is that the recovery is over, the growth is returning to trend, which is single digits. Margins are, are they're not as good as they're going to get, but they're pretty close. But the more important structural issue, I think, is that the market is changing. And whereas, you know, certainly five years ago, signaling was a separate contract that a rail operator would place with a, an independent company, and then they'd go and buy their rolling stock from someone, and they'd buy the, the railway, you know, the, the, the permanent way from somebody else. Now, increasingly, the metro operators in particular are placing integrated contracts, uh, turnkey contracts, and they want all the clever stuff inside the train rather than trackside. Um, and on that basis, the danger for Talis was that this business was going to be downgraded to a somebody else's subcontractor, you know, and they weren't going to be able to control, you know, to have the, the customer interface they wanted. So. You know, I, I, I was much more impressed by the argument for why they're selling it than I expected to be. This then raises the question of what do you do with the money? Because all of a sudden, or not, actually not all of a sudden, but end of next year, possibly, uh, Talis is going to have a billion seven of, of cash 
that they didn't previously expect. And they've been generating a ton of cash anyway. So they will, you know, they, they will be very, very net cash. Um, do they give that back to investors? Just don't get the feeling that management are that keen on that. European com- companies are much less keen on share buybacks than US companies are uh, in general, um, you know, whether it's a buyback or a special dividend or whatever. Um, they'd like to plough part of it back into um, R&D, but, you know, billion seven of R&D, that's a lot. That's two and a bit years spending uh, for Talis. Um, or are they going to do M&A? And if they're going to do M&A, what? Gemalto, uh, the... Um, uh, you know, effectively the the cyber um, uh, internet of things uh, and biometrics business they bought uh, three years ago. I still think the jury's out on that one. Defence acquisitions are harder for European companies to do than they would like. Um, on the other hand, you know, if stuff came up in the US, that would be another really interesting test then of the of the strength of Franco-US relations. And whether Talis is considered to be, you know, uh, you know, again, an acceptable purchaser of, of U.S. defense electronics assets. So, you know, it, it's going to give management some interesting times. There's no huge hurry at the moment. But, uh, you know, Talis is certainly going to change. And I said this was a big heritage business that, that they are now selling, um, which is you know, always slightly sad. But uh, at, at least the, the reasoning was, you know, was, was good. Um, and uh, take us, uh, walk us through Rheinmetall, uh, a company that has a tendency of hitting its marks. Yeah, I mean Rheinmetall is a company that's that's changing a lot. Um, it used to be a business that was, you know, roughly 50-50 auto components and and defence, which never makes as much sense outside Germany as it makes sense in Germany. Um, uh, but they've been selling bits of the automotive business off. They're trying to get rid of a pistons business, although they've had to write that down. Um, but the defense businesses are performing very, very strongly indeed. Um, and the interesting thing there is that Rheinmetall is changing from being heavily focused on Germany, its core market, to actually having a, a number of newly found home markets. You know, Australia, where they produce trucks and boxer armored vehicles, and they'd love to produce the next uh, tracked infantry fighting vehicle. UK, where they're, again, uh, trucks boxer armored vehicles and now upgrading all the, all the challenger tanks hungry where they're pretty much re-equipping the hungarian army um and so you know there's quite an interesting situation where, where uh you know germany goes from being 60 percent of revenues uh five years ago to being probably about 35 percent of revenues in you know over the next five years because the the, the new home markets are great uh, are growing so fast there's a bit of a sort of you know, pause at the moment, you know, sort of tactical pause, I suppose you'd call it. But, um, you know, the, the company's very, very upbeat uh, indeed about the outlook, both this year, uh, they've got some pretty punchy guidance for this year, um, but also, you know, for, 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 for the next two, three years or so in terms of growth and margins. And that's very encouraging to see. Um, Richard, I want to uh, bring in uh, Eurofighter upgrades. Uh, Sash, you can get a bite of this apple uh, in in a moment, but uh, it's it's one of the bigger pieces of news this week. Uh, walk, I want to get your sense on that, and then we've obviously got a Farah uh, bit of news uh, as 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 well. Walk us through uh, on Eurofighter, uh, what you think is so interesting in this uh, major upgrade program. Yeah, you know, I think it shows an interesting commitment to keep the type in service and keep it relevant for, for frankly, decades to come. I, I think there was a point, you know, following, of course, the great sweep of uh, JSF victories over the past few years, uh, where people began to regard Eurofighter as, uh, well, a little bit obsolete, especially since Raphael was scoring a lot of the European export sales. Uh, France looked like it had generally a better selling point for, you know, a, a fourth, a 4.5 generation fighter. The F-15 was coming back and it looked like, you know, Britain had moved on. Italy had certainly moved on. Spain might be moving on and that left Germany. So there was a feeling that perhaps Eurofighter could get squeezed out of the mix, but between Germany's uh, renewed commitment to buying the type plus upgrade contracts that affect all four major partner country companies, uh, countries like this, it's pretty clear this is going to be a relevant product, at, possibly in production and definitely in service for decades to come. Um, Sash, your, your sense, I mean, did you like what you see as somebody who uh, certainly uh, likes the type and want to see it in service? 
I, I'm always I'm always in favour of governments having actually having a long term plan for looking after the equipment that they've they've invested so much in and, and bought. Um, and sometimes the services are very bad at looking after equipment and and continuing to upgrade them. So yeah, I, very encouraging indeed. It's, it's quite interesting actually. If you look at what it is that distinguishes Eurofighter from the F thirty five, ultimately, it is the availability of very big or very long, or typically very big and very long-range weapons. Um, F-35 cannot carry uh, the weapons that Eurofighter can carry. And to an extent, those compensate for, the, for uh, you know, Eurofighter's uh, relative lack of stealth. If you can carry four, six meteor missiles, the, uh, the engagement range you have with those compared to an AMRAAM is, you know, that, that easily narrows the gap. Uh, with the F-35. Similarly, Eurofighter can carry Storm Shadow, or in the case of uh, uh, Germany, the Taurus KPD-350 cruise missiles. Um, and that's a strike capability that European nations are going to need. And frankly, you know, NATO is going to need uh, for decades to come, um, because there you've got missiles with a thousand kilometer range, uh, nautical mile ranges and, and very, very large warheads. And that's something an F-35 uh, can't carry yet. So, yeah, I, I think it's extremely encouraging. And also, frankly, you know, it comes down to Autoki, doesn't it? Uh, you know, this is work that stays in the domestic factories. This is domestic R&D. This keeps domestic skills going. And I'm afraid I'm, I'm in favour of that. And, and do you see a sale coming out of this? Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the upgrades are going to be worth uh, probably, you know, five to 10 million um, uh, pounds, euros, your currency per aircraft um keeping the product fresh means that you stay relevant in the export markets uh and so whether that means that um you know i mean it, you know this must have been one of the things that they have been uh offering to finland for example and you know that there we're still you know we'll probably have to wait a couple of months yet for for a result there but then you know there are still countries in the middle east that are looking for this malaysia was being mentioned as a, as a potential customer for Eurofighter, although they've sort of gone back into financial difficulties and indecision. Um, yeah, you know, we, I mean, without the, these upgrade programs, you lose your market competitiveness very, very quickly. Very quickly, Richard, do you sense another Eurofighter sale coming through here, right? I mean, is this the kind of investment that's going to bring somebody to come aboard and, and, and buy in? Because it's been a while since we've frankly seen a sale. Right. I mean, Germany, you know, aside from base uh, customers, right? I mean, Saudi Arabians are in the jet. The Austrians were in the jet. Um, we're, we're waiting for others to get in and there hasn't yet been another big deal, right? I mean, at one point we were talking about Japan. Uh, I mean, I suppose Canada is still outstanding, but at this point, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, would probably be F-35 there as well, given the Canadian industrial role in the program. I mean, that's the big question. You know, SAS says uh, big upgrade programs definitely uh, provide the kind of endorsement and, uh, well, you know, shot in the arm that uh, you need for export campaigns. But there are not a lot of identifiable opportunities. You know, if the whether or not the UAE follows through on the F-35 or whether or not they do something politically uh, unfortunate, like, uh, well, something to do with Chinese uh, export agreements or whatever, that you know, jeopardizes their access to the F-35, whether or not that happens, they also probably have a requirement for a second fighter jet. Could this be it? Quite possibly. India, possibly, but betting on the Indian market, of course, is a very long-term and very fraught game. And then most of all, of course, Saudi Arabia tranche too. That's been on the market for some time as a possibility. Um, if anything, might give it any hope with that, well, maybe this is it. So it's certainly worth it from that standpoint alone. The Bell, uh, obviously our sponsor of, uh, of this podcast series, uh, has uh, you know made one of its important talking points of uh, Agile, always trying to take cost out, uh, increase capability. They looked at the Fenestron tail rotor that originally was on uh, the far, uh, or their uh, FARA aircraft, which is in uh, construction uh, down in Texas. A couple of months ago, I visited down there and got a chance to see the airplane uh, in, in the skin uh, as they were building it uh, out. From, from your standpoint, uh, right, I mean, it, it just seems like this is kind of a logical thing that takes weight, complexity, and cost out of the program, doesn't it? 
I mean, yeah, if you were no, the guy yeah. engineering this, would you be doing this or would you have st- stayed with the shroud ducted rotor? And I want to get each one of you to take a bite on this, even yeah. though I have to ask you a defense qu- question as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would be doing this, right? I mean, a shroud, it's not really ducted. I mean, it's a really small duct, if you want to call it ducted. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, it's harder to walk into it, right? So there's safety factors around it. But uh, for, you know, a, a lightweight, uh, more agile military helicopter, yeah, of course you don't need it. Yeah, this is one of the things that would be pretty high on my list of changes. Uh, Richard, uh, your, your, your sense and take on this? Because you're you know, drawing think- some bigger... Faraflara uh, conclusions from this. I, I am. Uh, you know, I've always had a problem with FBL, the parent uh, organization or the parent requirement behind Faraflara and whatever else Cape sets uh, in the FBL program. And for me, it's been a study of how engineers and economists don't really like to talk very much with each other. And they don't quite understand the trade offs involved in reaching for something that sounds like a really good idea in this case a faster rotorcraft. And what you're hearing in the background is the sound of, well, <laughs> the army saying, okay, maybe we just need to stick with something more traditional to meet our rotorcraft requirements for FARA. And but, I think this- but, in- but for what it's worth, this seems to have originated at Bell as opposed to the customer, for what it's I worth. I think Bell is good at reading the customer. I mean, you know, frankly, I think they've got a really good chance with Invictus. And I think more and more they're looking at it and saying, what pays for itself here? Well, not much. It, it, <laughs> this, is, this, this stands a really good chance as a traditional rotorcraft. Also, you know, frankly, almost, you know, in a meta sense, you look back at the history of transforming, even the tail rotor of a helicopter, going back to the original LHX program that resulted in the Comanche. It was a choice between the Fenestron or some variation of it and the NOTAR system, the no-tail rotor right. thing with ducted air. And um, the answer, as it turns out, is uh, pretty much been, yeah, yeah also not worth, the, <laughs> not worth the trades. So what you've got- And, and is- that, was, that was more of a, and that was more at least billed at the time, right? For those of us who would ask uh, Team Comanche this question, I cannot believe we have invoked the name, but hey, the helicopter does have a weird resemblance to Comanche, right? It was for stealth reasons, even though, Ron, I fully appreciate, right? I mean, you've, you've got all sorts of radar energy scattering everywhere, but it was seen as stealthier than having a big uh, rotating. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I got to jump in on this one. There's no such thing as a stealthy, there's no such thing as a stealthy helicopter. You got it. You got it. You got a big spinning blade. And and the simple fact is all that tail order does is stops the helicopter from flipping over. It doesn't create lift. The lift is all in the the rotor disc. All that does is stop the helicopter from flipping over. So you want to put a shroud around it because you don't want anybody to walk into it. That's cool, I think, on a, on a commercial vehicle um, where you might have more concern about that. But if you've got, you know, more, uh, how do I say it, higher end operators who are highly trained, you don't need it. Um, got it. And I, I, I uh, as, as uh, you know, uh, never bought into that. I was just sort of saying that that was that was the talking point from uh, from uh, from the team. Uh, speaking of talking points, um, last week, uh, Richard, were you were you done with your exposition on Farah Flora? And I'm assuming, uh, Sash, that you have nothing to add to this discussion. Uh, I, I would just love to. Sorry, go ahead, Sash. <laughs> I mean, I'd just love to add one there. I mean, you know, I think. Uh, Fenestrons or whatever we're going to call them, because I mean, Fenestron is, I think, technically an Airbus helicopter um, bra- uh, or, you know, registered uh, name um, uh, uh, or registered design. Uh, they're, they're very, very elegant to look at in a, in a certain way. Um, but the, there's, there is a fundamental problem with that, which is that they are limited at, in terms of the amount of power you can put through them before the, the entire engineering solution becomes very, very ugly indeed. And it's quite interesting. If you look at the um, Airbus helicopters uh, family of helicopters over the years, more and more of them have uh, got Fenestrons, but it's been all the light helicopters. So it's been, uh, you know, the original um, EC120 uh, and then trying to, you know, um, I don't think they've really bothered, uh, except with the EC-130, to, to re-engineer the Ecurase particularly, but the Dauphin received it originally. They've just put a Fenestron onto the um uh, EC-145, and that's about that, that and the Dauphin, the EC-155, that's about the limit of the technology. Beyond that, uh, it's a lot of extra structure to handle n- not as much power as you really want in a big helicopter. And the problem for any of the designers, 
for Farah and Flara is that um, to get speed, you're having to add a prodigious amount of power relative to a conventional helicopter of that sort. Uh, you know, the only way that you, you get uh, over 200 knots is by overpowering these beasts. And actually, a, a Fenestron becomes an extremely expensive um, uh, luxury at the, at the tail end. And I'm, I'm with um, uh, Ron on this. You know, there's no such thing as a, as, a, as a stealthy helicopter. There's a less observable helicopter, but you certainly don't want to bet your life and your operational plan on it being stealthy because they're never going to be uh, that stealthy. You've got to be smart about how you use them. Um, of course, we should also point out, right, the legendary George Mulner uh, was the guy at Boeing who uh, managed to transform a handful of helicopters and, and field them. And, of, of course, they were used in the bin Laden raid uh, famously uh, as well. Richard, um, uh, last a point before I go to Ron and ask him a broader budget needle moving question. Yeah, you know, I just think it's pretty clear that the next generation of rotorcraft might look a lot like the last generation. And while I still think there might be room for some kind of advanced transport as a niche requirement, you know, the overwhelming bulk of transports will be, well, a lot like today's transport. So if I were Sikorsky, I think about a UH-60R, Boeing, about a CH-47Z or whatever we're up to and all right. of these things. And I think this this moment in time just sort of exemplifies that. And I think the Invictus has a pretty good chance for Farah. And, and what do you think of uh, Flora, right? I mean, there is a sense that the tilt rotor may be a better answer for what it is the Army wants to do, given it as a range and speed requirement. Yeah, there's a fairly elegant solution to all of this that actually kind of does pretty good things for the industrial base, which is to admit that Flara is a niche requirement, that no, you can't have a thousand lifters that cost 40 million or 50 million or whatever V280 would cost, but you know, the army would like some for whatever its, per whatever its new role in the Pacific is going to be. So, you know, a few hundred V280s for the army and certainly for the Marines and whoever else. And then the bulk of army requirements stay with uh, Sikorsky and Boeing for the rest of lift. So Bell does pretty good out of this. There are no tectonic movements in the industrial arrangements behind the rotorcraft business. Uh, but then again, there's not exactly a whole lot of advancement in the art of rotorcraft design anyway. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to having uh, folks from both of the companies come on the program and join us, especially as we get uh, uh, past this sort of quiet period that everybody uh, is uh, observing. Ron, uh, let me ask you one uh, quick question. Uh, $25 billion plus up in U.S. defense spending proposed by the Senate Armed Services Committee. There's a sense that the House, the administration are going to follow. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, uh, Republicans uh, in the Senate are also proposing $50 billion additional dollars for defense uh, infrastructure. Uh, obviously, there is a sense the nation's uh, military construction and, and industrial infrastructure uh, hasn't kept uh, pace in the last uh, several decades since the end of the Cold War. Are, are investors listening more to this? Because last week it was not a needle mover, but I always have to feel like even if it's the doldrums of summer, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, in terms of what the defense spending vectors might be and whether folks are registering that at this point, or is it something that they'd already calculated in or, you know, where, where are we? Yeah, for sure. They didn't calculate it in. Right. I mean, to be clear, you know, post um, the, the, the Biden victory, I would say, you know, and we discussed this before that the market sense was you'd see defense spending cut pretty prodigiously. And you know clearly that hasn't happened, and, and in fact, I don't think anybody was expecting the defense budget potentially to be be up in nominal terms. I mean, it depends on where inflation falls out in real terms, but uh, up mid single digit nominal terms is a is a good case uh, relative. Now, has it been noticed by the investment community at large? Not so much, maybe a little bit more, um, but you know it hasn't. It really hasn't been a big a big focus with with investors. Um, and like, you know, I, I think when you look at the quarter, and this is why you're getting kind of mixed results. And, um, you know, some companies have done better than others. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, one of those situations. And I, and I think investors are focusing on that. But the reality is, as we all know, I mean, changes in the, in the budget dynamic hasn't filtered through to companies right now anyway. So um, I think the investment community has been a little more short term focused than sort of the more medium term. Um, that uh, a big focus on the budget would would suggest. I mean, those out there who are sort of defense aficionados who look at this all the time, of course, they've seen it. But 
the more generalist um, investor community, uh, I don't think is as aware of it as one would hope. Any, any parting thoughts before we part for the week? Going once, going twice, going three times? So, guys, thanks Parting very much for joining. Parting is sweet sorrow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll we'll hand out napkins for, uh, with uh, with the, with the next uh, with the next so episode. I, 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 can I say one thing? Say yeah, this. of course. And I'll phrase it if you want to add it or not. Um, just adding on to Richard's comments. I mean, there's a very good reason why helicopters today don't look all that different than the helicopters that were first put together by Igor Sikorsky. Um, I I I think that there is uh, a sense uh, that right. I mean, if there was something better. We would have done something better, although there are a couple of designs, uh, right? I mean, uh, everybody who knows me knows this. You know, I've, I've long been a tilt rotor fan, but that it carries a cost, but you have to think completely differently about how you do your entire vertical lift architecture, uh, ultimately, right? But for, uh, so anyways, that, that's what's going to be utterly fascinating about this. And what I also think is kind of interesting is, no matter what happens, you're going to have decades worth of uh, 60s and 47s and a variety of other aircraft that will be in the ecosystem, right? Um, and one other, one other thing I would add, if we ever can get the battery thing solved, making an electric tilt rotor is a hell of a lot easier than making a mechanical tilt rotor. Um, so, you know, once, once that nut is solved, there'll be I oh. think, some, some good military applications of an electric tilt rotor. Oh, can I can I gently please just push back a little bit on that? <laughs> yes, will the tilt rotor lover in our midst go on? No, it's not anti tilt rotor. I'm plenty fine with tilt rotor. It's just run. One of the purposes of a tilt rotor is long range infiltration and exfiltration. You know, think Desert One and Iran and whatever else. Um, good luck doing air to air electrical recharging of a battery. No, hey, I was just saying, if you ever get the, the battery nut solved, right? So I'm, not, I'm, I'm just putting two electric motors on a tilt system is a heck of a lot easier than having a, a mechanical system. So, But with fuel, right. you can use a KC-130J to refuel the thing in midair and get another, you know, 800 miles out of it or whatever. Whereas oh. batteries, no, you can't do that. Although I would I would point out, right, I mean, the, the difference between the V280 and Right in a V22, you are actually tilting those AE2100s up and down. In the V280, the engines are in the fuselage. You have drive shafts that are running it out to uh, gearboxes that are at the tips of the wings, which is a, which is which is a very different uh, dynamic and a and a and a safer and easier dynamic uh, at at the end of the day than rotating um, the 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 engines with the torque of uh, propeller blades uh, that are spinning simultaneously. Anyway. We could continue for another hour in this conversation. Everybody, thanks very much. I uh, hope you guys have a great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Enjoyed it a lot as always, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.